And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. Ladies and gentlemen, your ears are not deceiving you. It really is true. You are listening to a brand new full-length episode of Tradcast, the traditional Roman Catholic podcast that is not more Catholic than the Pope, just more Catholic than the Antipope. We are the Vatican II sect's worst nightmare because not only do we expose and refute its countless errors, heresies, and scandals, but also, and this is where it really hurts, we point out that the people claiming to be the Catholic hierarchy are in fact nothing but a bunch of non-Catholic charlatans and usurpers who hold no authority in the Church whatsoever. So, welcome to a new Tradcast. It's been a while since we had the last one, and that is mainly because it's becoming increasingly difficult to find large chunks of time to set aside in which to produce a podcast because so much happens every day that continually interrupts the flow of work required for longer projects like a Tradcast. And yes, it is a long project. See, in order to crank out a full-length show with all the preparations and post-production things you have to do, you really need about two full days to get it all taken care of. And that's two days in which you can basically do nothing else. Now, imagine you're at a candy store and they have 500 different kinds of chocolate to choose from, but you can only pick 10 of them. That's kind of how it feels preparing a Tradcast these days. You have such an arsenal of stories and issues and topics to choose from that no matter which ones you end up picking, you'll always wish you'd also picked some of the others. You just can't win. So we have no choice but to go over some topics in the show and leave others aside. Today, I'd like to begin by honoring a request that a listener had made some time ago, and that is talk for a little bit about what someone just coming out of the Novus Ordo Church ought to do to educate himself in the true Catholic faith. And here I'm not talking about how to be received into the Catholic Church by a Sedevacanus priest or whatever, but simply what books to read and what resources to use to learn the true faith and undo the damage of Novus Ordo education. Now, we could do a whole show on just that, but uh, let me just mention some basics. First, as a general principle, you want to read approved Catholic literature from before roughly 1960, especially papal encyclicals, theological manuals, catechisms, devotionals, and spiritual books. As far as encyclicals go, you can find, I think, all of them 
They began in 1740 with the pontificate of Pope Benedict XIV. You can find them at papalencyclicals.net. Now, you have to stop with Pius XII because after him is when all the Novus Ordo junk uh, started being taught by the false popes, but that is uh, the place where you can read all of the true papal encyclicals. Now, of course, you can't really, you know, read all of them. I mean, there's hundreds of them. And without further guidance, you really wouldn't know which ones to pick, right? Which ones are the really important ones, the ones that are most significant uh, for our times. So what I suggest uh, you do is get a book called Popes Against Modern Errors. That book uh, contains the most significant papal encyclicals and apostolic letters from 1832 to 1950. That's from Pope Gregory XVI's Merari Vos to Pius XII's Humani Generis. That's a total of 16 papal documents in about 360 pages. It's an excellent little compendium that you'll want to read. And if you've uh, never been exposed to the pre-Vatican II Church before, what you'll find in these documents is a completely different religion from what you've been led to believe is the Catholic religion. You'll find refutations and condemnations of all of the Novus Ordo garbage you hear day in and day out throughout the new Vatican II Church, especially from Francis and his five predecessors of unhappy memory. The Popes Against Modern Errors addresses and condemns such errors and heresies as liberalism, ecumenism, modernism, Freemasonry, naturalism, indifferentism, communism, and so forth. So really, the surest way of getting to know the true Catholic religion and seeing the errors in the Vatican II religion is to read those papal documents. You'll derive tremendous profit from them. And then there's one encyclical you'll definitely want to read that is not contained in that book, but can be found at papalencyclicals.net, and that is Pius XII's 1947 encyclical Mediator Dei on the Sacred Liturgy. In it, you'll find condemned the very revolutionary changes in liturgy that Paul VI implemented in 1969 with the creation of the so-called New Mass, the Novus Ordo Missae which is the worship service that, if you're just coming from the Vatican II Church, is what you know as the Catholic Mass. That is condemned in that document, Mediator Dei, by Pius XII. Find it at papalencyclicals.net. Then uh, another excellent source, another great book that I cannot recommend highly enough is Liberalism is a Sin by the 19th century Spanish priest Father Felix Sarda y Salvani. That book is the death knell of the Second Vatican Council. It makes mincemeat out of many of the sophisms, errors, and heresies of that council, and especially also the so-called spirit of Vatican II. And the best part about this book is that it was explicitly endorsed and recommended by the Holy See under Pope Leo XIII. And the way that happened is that some liberal-leaning priest in the 1880s basically denounced Father Sarda to the Holy See for having written this book, Liberalism is a Sin. And that liberal priest thought that the Vatican would examine and then condemn the book, right, for being too rigid. Well, turns out that the Vatican did examine the book, but they found it so well-written and so orthodox that they gave it their highest praise 
and instead started investigating the liberal priest who denounced it. So that little book is also a must-read to understand true Catholic doctrine and how it differs from the modernist garbage we are given today. And by the way, all of these books that I'm mentioning here, uh, we're linking all of them in our show notes at tradcast.org. So you can just go there, scroll down, and click on the link to episode number 24, and you'll find all the info there to where you can order those titles. Now, as far as traditional catechism goes, something substantial that will really teach you the traditional faith, but without it being, you know, like an eight-volume dogmatic theology set, I would suggest the following books, all of which have their advantages and disadvantages. You'll want to simply look into all of them and then simply decide which of them works best for you. There is, first and foremost, the good old Catechism of the Council of Trent, also known simply as the Roman Catechism. It was first published in the 16th century by order of Pope St. Pius V and edited by St. Charles Borromeo. That catechism covers the essentials in some depth, but not too much. Okay? It was actually written for parish priests as a guide on how to instruct their people. Then there's the more exhaustive book, The Catechism Explained, by Father Francis Spirago, published in 1899 and another edition in about 1921 or thereabouts. That is a big book with a nice index and plenty of example, and so that's uh, very useful. If you like uh, more of a Baltimore-type catechism where the faith is presented in question-and-answer format, you can probably do no better than Cardinal Peter Gaspari's The Catholic Catechism from 1932. Problem is, that book is not in print currently, but you can download a scanned electronic version, and we have the link for that also in the show notes, The Catholic Catechism by Cardinal Peter Gaspari. And finally, if you're uh, looking for a really nice family catechism, one that uh, keeps things simple and also uses beautiful illustrations to explain not just the doctrines of the faith and the sacraments and the Lord's Prayer, but also goes into things like explaining the setup of the Catholic altar and different religious orders, how to gain an indulgence, and so on, you'll want the My Catholic Faith Catechism by Bishop Laurevoir Morrow, published in the early 1950s. Another really important kind of book to read is an apologetics book that uh, shows the rational basis of the entire Catholic faith from the ground up. Okay, it's, it's one thing to be educated in the doctrines of the faith that the church teaches, but you also need to understand the foundations. Why do we believe what we believe? Why do we believe in the Bible and in the Catholic Church? Why do we believe in Jesus Christ? Why do we even so much as believe that we have a soul that needs to be saved? How can we prove the existence of God in the first place? So these foundational issues are very important. And um, for that, I would recommend a book by Father Anthony Alexander called College Apologetics, Proof of the Truth of the Catholic Faith. It was originally published in 1954 and is quite 
readable. It's, it's quite easy to follow. Now, regarding Vatican II and the whole new religion that began with John the Twenty Third in 1958, a brand new book just came out that I want to tell you about, and that is an enormous 809-page whopper called Vatican II Exposed as Counterfeit Catholicism. The authors are two priests of the Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen, Fathers Francisco and Dominic Radecki. They're not just biological brothers, but also identical twins. And in publishing this book, which took about eight years to complete, they have done a great service to the church because this book is not only very thoroughly researched, it is also very readable for the average layman. It covers not only the inside story of Vatican II, but also contains chapters on each of the false popes and their respective backgrounds. It includes a bibliography that is something like 50 pages long, and it's got a total of over 3,000 footnotes. Vatican II exposed as counterfeit Catholicism. So, of course, we have that linked as well, and uh, we're linking to a page where you can download a preview file that will let you look at some of the pages of that book. And later in this program, I'll tell you how you can receive that book as a gift from us. Now, I could go on and on about uh, what are great traditional Catholic books, but uh, we'd never finish. So let me just point you to our resource page called Now What?, which has a ton of links to traditional Catholic sermons, uh, traditional Catholic book and gift stores, and uh, a great many helpful tips that you can use to help you live a truly Catholic life in these extremely dark and difficult times. So check out the link for that, our Now What page. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time once again for the most dangerous minutes in podcasting. We're going to look at the words of Jorge Bergoglio, the man known as Pope Francis. From the Jorge's mouth... Yes, we're going to take a look now at what has recently emanated from the Jorge's mouth. Although I have to admit that uh, some of this isn't exactly recent. Uh, We'll start something from September 25th, 2018. Chaos Frank was visiting Estonia, and he said the following to an ecumenical meeting of the youth. Quote, You boys and girls, young people, know this. When a Christian community is truly Christian, it does not engage in proselytism. It only listens, welcomes, accompanies, and walks, but does not impose anything. Unquote. Yeah, except climate change, openness, tolerance, migrant worship, and all the other stuff he never shuts up about, right? 
But hey, when it comes to such insignificant little issues as the true faith and salvation of your soul, heaven forbid you should ever actually, you know, talk about it in any meaningful way. You only get to listen, welcome, accompany, and walk. Remember what Francis said two years prior in the nation of Georgia? He said this, quote, There is a big sin against ecumenism, proselytism. You must never proselytize the Orthodox. They are our brothers and sisters, disciples of Jesus Christ, unquote. You can't make it up. But it's ironic because... Here he's talking about never imposing anything, and he does it by imposing. I'm sick of this guy. By the way, when you look at the New Testament, at the Gospels, what do you see Christ doing? Do you only see him listening, accompanying, welcoming, walking, whatever that means anyway? No, you don't. You see him imposing things. For example, Just as he ascends into heaven, God incarnate says to his disciples, Go ye into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. That's Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. And in John 8, 24, Christ says to the Jews, If you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sin. How's that for imposing something? Pretty rigid, huh? Or how about what Christ says in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10? But he that shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to send peace upon earth. I came not to send peace, but the sword. For I came to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies shall be they of his own household." He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not up his cross and followeth me is not worthy of me. It's Matthew 10, verses 33 to 38. It doesn't sound like just welcoming, listening, accompanying, and walking to me. So let's finally cut this Bregolian poppycock that makes Christ into some kind of effeminate village idiot. You know, it's funny that the Novus Ordo sect always claims to be so scriptural, right? In their liturgy and in, in their magisterial texts and all. And they're always preaching about how we must allow ourselves to be nourished by God's word and all that. And then they contradict scripture left and right on such simple and fundamental issues. So, no, proselytism isn't a sin against ecumenism. Rather, ecumenism is the sin. All right, another thing I wanted to talk about that came from the apostate lips of Jorge Bergoglio is what he said in a letter addressed to the chief rabbi of Rome, Ricardo di Segni, last year in September. Francis sent him greetings on the occasion of three Jewish feasts that were all celebrated in quick succession, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. Now, although the full text of that letter has not been released, or at least I haven't been able to find it anywhere, 
Vatican News did publish some excerpts of it in a news post on September 18th, and that's where I'm quoting from now. Quote, The Pope writes that he hopes that these festivities might revive the memory of the benefits received from the Most High. He also extended his thought to all the Jewish communities in the world, that they might find in these feasts the source of further graces and spiritual consolation, unquote. This is apostasy. For 2,000 years now, the Old Covenant has been over, okay? Over. No more. That's because God himself came to earth, brought the Mosaic Covenant to an end, and established the new covenant. All right? That's why it's called new. Just look at Hebrews 8.13 and 10.9, for example, to see evidence of that. Or simply recall that rending of the veil in the temple when Christ died on the cross. That signified that the old law was over, forever, over, and done with. Once the new covenant was fully in effect and the initial period of transition was over in 70 AD when the Jewish temple was destroyed, it became a mortal sin of false worship to observe the Mosaic law. The 15th century Council of Florence taught the following in its decree Cantate Domino, quote, This council firmly believes, professes, and teaches that the matter pertaining to the law of the Old Testament, of the Mosaic law, which are divided into ceremonies, sacred rites, sacrifices, and sacraments, because they were established to signify something in the future, although they were suited to the divine worship at that time after our Lord's coming that had been signified by them, ceased, and the sacraments of the New Testament began." and that whoever, even after the Passion, placed hope in these matters of the law and submitted himself to them as necessary for salvation, as a faith in Christ could not save without them, sinned mortally. Yet it does not deny that after the Passion of Christ, up to the promulgation of the gospel, they could have been observed until they were believed to be in no way necessary for salvation. But after the promulgation of the gospel, it asserts that they cannot be observed without the loss of eternal salvation. All, therefore, who after that time observe circumcision and the Sabbath and the other requirements of the law, it declares alien to the Christian faith, and not in the least fit to participate in eternal salvation, unless someday they recover from these errors. Unquote. And you can look that up in Denzinger, number 712. In his book series, A Manual of Moral Theology, the Jesuit Father Thomas Slater writes, quote, The ceremonies and practices of the Jewish religion signified that the Messiah was to come, and so now, after the coming of our Lord, they could not be employed without superstition, meaning false worship. Inasmuch as falsehood in religion is a grave injury to God, this species of superstition is mortally sinful. Unquote. That's page 140 in uh, volume 1 of his Manual of Moral Theology, the fifth edition from 1925. And of course, we've got that linked for you as well. This book is actually available for free electronically. Think about it. This makes perfect sense. The old law, which was imperfect and devoid of grace, foreshadowed the new law, which is perfect and capable of sanctifying souls. 
all the ceremonies of the old law pointed to a future fulfillment in Christ. So, once the fulfillment has taken place and the old ceremonies have been replaced by the Catholic sacraments and sacramentals, and all the church's liturgical services and so on, to then go back to what came before, to what is imperfect, to the signs and shadows rather than the reality, and observe them which speak of or point to a future Messiah when that Messiah has already come and fulfilled everything, that is necessarily an incredible blasphemy and implicit rejection of the faith. So for Francis to say not only that the keeping of the Old Testament ceremonies, now that what they signified has already been fulfilled, is the source of grace and spiritual consolation, is a scandal in its own right. But what makes it even worse, what clearly makes it apostasy, is that he is telling that to a representative of the Talmudic Jewish religion, a religion that denies that these Old Testament ceremonies have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is a blasphemy, and it is apostasy. Of course, for Francis, that's par for the course, but, you know. So, Francis is here blaspheming, and he's giving credence to the false Jewish religion and explicitly confirming an unbeliever in his rejection of Jesus Christ. So, that's like a triple mortal sin. I'm telling you, Francis is vying for the hottest place in hell. Then, according to Vatican News, Francis continued with his letter to the rabbi, saying, quote, May the Most High bless us with the gift of peace, inspiring us toward greater diligence to promote it untiringly, unquote. Well, you know, if Francis sincerely wants peace for his Jewish friend, well, why won't he tell him about the Prince of Peace sometime. Hey, just a thought. We know the answer, of course, because Francis doesn't really believe in the Prince of Peace himself. All right, do we want to do one more from the Jorge's mouth? It's dirty business, I know, but uh, someone's got to do it. Okay, one more. This one is very recent. On April 7th this year, Passion Sunday, just a few days ago, Francis visited the Church of San Giulio in the Diocese of Rome. And uh, at one point, he answered questions from children. And a girl named Carlotta asked him about how to deal with doubts in the faith. And one of the things he said in response was this, quote, Even getting angry at Jesus can be a kind of prayer. Jesus likes seeing the truth of our heart. Don't make pretense in front of Jesus. Unquote. So this is clearly blasphemy once again. He tells you that getting angry at God is a legitimate way of praying. It's unbelievable. We have a link to the video where you can hear him say it in Italian together with a translation. And this was posted by the Rorate Celi blog, so it's not even a set of a kind of source. Then, uh, two days later, on April 9th, Francis was back in the Vatican preaching his daily homily at the Casa Santa Marta, and guess what he said? He pointed out that complaining against God is a sin. No kidding. We've got a link to the Catholic Herald covering that story. And uh, so you can see that, once again, 
Francis is doing the utmost damage to souls, yet always while giving himself some plausible deniability. And so those people who want to justify complaining against God can appeal to Francis in support. And those who want to condemn complaining against God can appeal to Francis in support. You see how the game works? It's not a new game, by the way. By no means. In 1794, Pope Pius VI condemned it in the bull Auctorum Fide. He called it an, quote, erroneous pretext that the seemingly shocking affirmations in one place are further developed along orthodox lines in other places, and even in yet other places corrected, as if allowing for the possibility of either affirming or denying the statement, or of leaving it up to the personal inclinations of the individual. Such has always been the fraudulent and daring method used by innovators to establish error. It allows for both the possibility of promoting error and of excusing it. Unquote. Bam! Yep, bam is right. That is exactly what we've been seeing with the modernists since Vatican II. You know, when Francis dies, I think a lot of people will attend his funeral just to make sure he's actually getting buried. That much apostasy, blasphemy, impiety, and scandal all wrapped into one person claiming to be a Catholic. I'm not sure the world has ever seen that before. Certainly not in someone claiming to be the Pope. Anyway, we're going to take a break here in just a minute. But before we do, I'd like to change gears and say just a few words about a topic that is very important for the practice of the traditional Catholic faith, but that often gets neglected, ignored, or dismissed, perhaps because its significance is not well understood. So I'd like to help out by explaining some of the underlying principles. The topic is modesty in dress, not just at Mass, but in general. Both men and women have an obligation to be modest, but the standards for male modesty are a lot different and, yeah, easier than for female modesty. So, I'd like to offer a few encouraging words here to our dear lady listeners concerning female modesty and the beauty of femininity, which is exemplified, of course, in the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, speaking from my own experience, I can say that there is really nothing more wonderful for a man to see than a woman who is dressed modestly, because that is a great testimony to her femininity. Let me explain. See, the purpose of clothing is to conceal the body, not to reveal it. And if you look at Scripture, the first time that people put on anything was Adam and Eve right after the fall, right after they committed original sin. That's because at that point, they were no longer master over their passions, for they had lost the state of original innocence. The need to clothe ourselves is, in part, a punishment for original sin, just like labor is and bodily suffering. But even aside from being a punishment, it's also necessary because we all suffer from concupiscence, which means we're naturally inclined to vice rather than to virtue, to sin rather than to holiness. And since impurity is a sin of weakness rather than of malice, we must do whatever we reasonably can out of charity not to be a needless occasion of sin to another. 
So modesty is really the safeguard of purity. If you want your children to be pure, make sure they learn to dress modestly. Now that alone won't suffice, of course, but it's an essential part. And if you want others to look at you with pure intentions, then do not give them needless occasion for impure thoughts. I want to add that modesty is also an incredible witness. If you're dressed modestly, you're testifying that you respect God, you respect yourself, and you respect those you meet. A woman who is dressed modestly also commands respect by that very fact alone, because modest dress confers on her a kind of visible dignity that is simply not had any other way, and modesty in dress allows a man to enjoy conversation and interaction with the opposite sex without constantly having to guard his eyes, and that means less distraction, less focus on the body, more focus on the person and her character. Now, I don't want to get into all the details about exactly what counts as modest and not modest. And, you know, the basic idea is to sufficiently cover the body and to de-emphasize the contours of the body. And I know that can be difficult to determine sometimes. And yes, there are some gray areas, um, but I would just say this. It all starts with a genuine intention to be modest, just like any other virtue, right? Before anything else you have to sincerely desire that virtue and ask God for grace to practice it. So if that's a virtue you're currently struggling with, why not start there? And if you'd like to know more about this whole issue, what you can or should wear, and how to obtain modest clothing and so forth, or if you just want to better understand the subject, uh, there are plenty of resources available online and we're linking some of them in the show notes. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention here the phenomenal work by Mrs. Rita Davidson, a book called Immodesty, Satan's Virtue, a very important read. So I want to encourage all Catholic ladies to whom it may apply, get rid of those jeans, ditch those pants, be modest, wear dresses, wear skirts, wear blouses. It is so beautiful, and really manifests your dignity. All right, that's all I wanted to say about that issue, and now let's take a brief timeout before we return with lots more to talk about. It's not just a podcast. It's, it's a, a trap cast. Trap cast. you are enjoying the sample of the motet Felix Nanquies from the album Sacred Choral Music by Nicholas Wilton, sung by the acclaimed English choir Magnificat. If you appreciate such sacred choral music, please support the traditional Catholic composer Nicholas Wilton by buying a copy of his CD or purchasing downloads of individual tracks from 4marksmusic.com. That is, F-O-U-R-M-A-R-K-S-M-U-S-I-C.com or his website, catholicmusic.co.uk. There is more information and also a new CD of his piano music available on those websites.
If you're looking for EWTN, this ain't it. Trapcast. Catholic triumphalism is here to stay, and this podcast is evidence of it. Tradcast is Novus Ordo Watch on the go for your ears. Unapologetically and refreshingly sedeva contest. You may have noticed that the semi-traditionalists of the Recognize and Resist camp have been in overdrive mode lately, spending an enormous amount of time battling sedevacantism. In the last few weeks and months, we've seen article after article, video after video, blog post after blog post of all sorts of people desperately trying to keep you from concluding that the manifest apostate occupying Vatican City isn't actually the Pope. To mention just a few names, we've seen stuff by Athanasius Schneider, John Hunwick, Roberto de Mattei, Chris Ferreira, Michael Matt, Taylor Marshall, Steve Skojek, Peter Kwasniewski, and so forth. Now, that's a really good sign, actually. It shows that, obviously, a lot of people are starting to figure it out. They're starting to understand that someone as obviously non-Catholic as Francis cannot be the Pope of the Catholic Church, and that is why you can and must refuse him submission, resist his teachings and laws. And so the pundits and bloggers and YouTubers of the Recognize and Resist camp are taking notice, and they're increasing their efforts to oppose Sedevacanism. Now, they obviously wouldn't be doing that if they didn't see a real need for it. So, I think we can say that's actually a really good sign. What all of these people have in common is that in their purported efforts to provide clarity and truth about the problematic pontificate of Pope Francis is that somehow they always know from the outset that whatever the right answer is, it's not that Francis isn't the Pope. That's the one thing they all agree on, regardless of how they get to that conclusion. That's the one thing that's always certain right off the bat. And that's what makes their efforts so contemptible. I mean, if you're going to try to figure this thing out, then from the outset you have to admit at least as a possibility that Francis might not be the Pope. Even if you end up not concluding that, at least it would show you're sincere and people could take you seriously. But what's really happening is people are simply trying to come up with ways to denounce Francis while at the same time not having to conclude that he's not the Pope. That's all it is. So, 
It's time that we countered some of the sophistry, and we've done it many times in prior podcasts. So if you're new to this show, make sure you listen to all 23 prior episodes, as well as the many express podcasts we've made, a total of 81 so far, because you'll get a truckload of information from those, and all for free, of course. As a general rule, I'll say this. A lot of the arguments you hear from these semi-trads, these recognizing resistors, are basically the very objections against the papacy and papal authority that the liberals, the Protestants, the Gallicans, the modernists, the old Catholics, and the rationalists made in the 19th and 20th centuries. If you look at what these people say, what objections they make against Sedevacanism's supposedly inflated view of papal authority, you find those objections answered in the pre-Vatican II Catholic theology manuals. So, arguments from historical cases of the past, like Popes Liberius, Honorius I, or John XXII, arguments about St. Paul resisting St. Peter to his face in Galatians 2, or the charge of Ultramontanism, all of that is answered in the regular Catholic theology books before Vatican II. And yet you have these semi-trats popping up all over the place with their false and misleading argumentation. And of course, they're being treated by their readers and listeners as though they were these great lights that Catholics should look up to in these dark times. It's sickening. So, I really can't take any more of these self-appointed gatekeepers of true Catholicism that are all insistent that Francis is Pope, but then act in opposition to what he teaches, so that they're effectively setting themselves up as an alternate authority against the person they claim is the vicar of Christ. See, that's what makes it so absurd. We say don't have a pope. That's why the remaining clergy and faithful have to do what they can to educate people about the real Catholic religion. But these false traditionalists, these recognizing resistors, are always doing what they're doing in opposition to their supposedly legitimate hierarchy. And that is definitely not permitted. Talk about schism. And that's why we call them semi-trats. They want to be traditional, right? But only up to a point. When it comes to the traditional teaching about the papacy, the magisterium, and the church, then they're suddenly not interested in being traditional anymore. Then they start hurling epithets like papalatry and and, and hyper-uber-papalist and ultramontanism. Uh, around and they repeat the same objections against the papacy that the heretics of the past used against Vatican I. So anyway, let's look at uh, some of what uh, they've been arguing as of late. First, let's have a brief look at this charge of ultramontanism that keeps being brought up. It's used by people who apparently have no real clue about what the term means or where it came from. They just seem to be happy that they found an ism to hurl against their opponents. Well, to answer that, we can use the very book that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, Father Sarda Isalvani's Vatican-endorsed work, Liberalism is a Sin, from 1886. And keep in mind that liberalism here basically means modernism. Father Sarda responds to those heretics of the 19th century that kept hurling the term ultramontanism at Catholics. He writes, quote, 
Ultramontanism is Catholicity intact and armed from head to foot. It is Catholicity consistent in all its parts, the logical concatenation of Catholic principles to their fullest conclusions in doctrine and practice. Hence the fierce and unholy opposition with which it is constantly assailed. The foe well knows that to rout the vanguard is to demoralize the entire army. Hence their rage and fury against the invincible phalanx, which always stands fully armed, sleeplessly vigilant, and eternally uncompromising. Unquote. And uh, that quote is taken from chapter 33 of Liberalism is a Sin. We've got that linked in the show notes. And yes, that book is available for free electronically, as well as being available for purchase in print. Then Monsignor Umberto Benigni, who was one of Pope St. Pius X's chief bulldogs against modernism, wrote the entry on Ultramontanism for the Catholic Encyclopedia, published in 1912. And he wrote, quote, for Catholics, it would be superfluous to ask whether Ultramontanism and Catholicism are the same thing. Assuredly, those who combat Ultramontanism are in fact combating Catholicism, even when they disclaim the desire to oppose it. And a little later he says, This warfare by the rationalist Protestant modernist coalition against clericalism or ultramontanism is fundamentally directed against integral Catholicism, that is, against papal, anti-liberal, and counter-revolutionary Catholicism, unquote. So there you have it. Next time you hear some semi-trat smart aleck complain about ultramontanism, you know he's got no idea what he's talking about. See, the problem is that there are just too many people who act like sacred theology is their own personal toy that they can play with as they please. And the result is very often what I would call a kind of pop traditionalism, a popular traditionalism that is mostly about beautiful external ceremonies, traditional prayers and customs, the old catechisms, well, with some things in there they ignore because, you know, diabolical disorientation and all, coupled with lots of piety and, of course, rejection of Vatican II garbage. Well, that's very nice, but that's not enough. It has to proceed from sound theological principles. In other words, it has to be grounded in traditional Catholic theology. Traditionalism can only be right and true if it is the natural consequence of Orthodox Catholic teaching. What we see among the semi-trads version of traditionalism, though, is a butchering of Catholic theology that relies on half-truths, selective drive-by theology, and emotion in order to produce the desired result. Why? Well, because there is one premise they will never question, one super-dogmatic principle they will insist on no matter what, and that is the idea that the papal claimants after 1958, after Pius XII, have been true popes, that Sedevacanists are wrong, that the Novus Ordo popes are legitimate. And because they refuse to give up or even question that premise, and nevertheless still want the Catholicism of the past, they must do great violence to Catholic teaching to receive the desired result of traditional beliefs and practices, traditional liturgy, and so on. 
Francis is the square peg that won't fit into the round hole of the papacy. And what the semi-trads are doing now, since they refuse to give up that square peg, is they are damaging that hole until the darn peg fits. And so, I've said this many times before, they're actually sacrificing the papacy in order to have a pope. The irony is through the roof. So that's pop traditionalism for you. And you'll find that especially at uh, Catholic Family News, at the Remnant, the Fatima Center, the Society of St. Pius X, and 1 Peter 5, for instance. And speaking of 1 Peter 5, here's a case in point. On October 2nd, 2018, Steve Skojak, the editor-in-chief, published an article entitled, That's Not Who We Are Anymore. Pre- and post-conciliar Catholicism are not the same religion. Darn right they're not. But if you think that true popes can institute a new religion, and that this doesn't violate the promises of Christ, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the Catholic Church, then you have no clue about Catholic doctrine and shouldn't be writing about it in the first place. Somehow these people refuse to see that it's the end of the papacy and therefore of Catholicism, not if the Novus Ordo Popes aren't true popes, but if they are. They've created a new religion. Hint, hint. True popes cannot do that. If popes could do that, then there would be no point to having a papacy. We wouldn't need it. Martin Luther would do just fine. In fact, such a papacy would be worse than useless. It would be positively dangerous. And it would mean that Christ has betrayed his flock, which is obviously impossible and blasphemous even to suspect. In the show notes to this Tradcast 24, we'll once again put a link to our page, The Catholic Teaching on the Papacy. It's a collection of quotes from sundry magisterial documents, papal documents, throughout church history. Read through that and see if you think that teaching is compatible with the idea that popes can create a new religion. And don't say that, oh, well, the pope is not always infallible. That has nothing to do with it. Just because a pope isn't always infallible doesn't mean he is capable of creating a new religion. Read those teachings and you'll see how utterly absurd that idea is that a true pope could institute heresy or even an, an entirely new religion. It's not possible, all right? Uh, for example, look at Pope Leo XIII. He taught, quote, Whatever the Roman pontiffs have hitherto taught or shall hereafter teach must be held with a firm grasp of mind and, so often as occasion requires, must be openly professed, unquote. That's from the encyclical Immortality number 41. Okay, nothing in there about infallibility, is there? So if you think that Francis is Pope, go right ahead. But then you have to believe and teach what he believes and teaches. Then goodbye, traditional Catholicism. You can junk your Baltimore Catechism, your, your Douay Reims Bible, your apologetics books, and so on. Then say hello to Gaudium et Space, Pacem and Teres, Amoris Laetitia, Evangelii Gaudium, and so forth. Now, some semi-trats try to get around this obvious problem by saying that, well, we live in apocalyptic times. You know, like that would somehow mean that Catholic doctrine no longer applies. 
We can probably all agree that we live in the apocalyptic era, or at least close to it. But just a little reminder from Catholic tradition here. Listen up, all you who consider yourselves traditionalists. In Catholic tradition, the Pope is the one opposing the Antichrist. He's not the one doing his bidding. The Pope is persecuted by the Antichrist and suffers because of it. He's not the Antichrist lackey and making the Catholic faithful suffer. And if you don't believe it, read Cardinal Henry Edward Manning. Link is in the show notes. Now let's move on to Michael Matt, the editor of The Remnant. Of course, The Remnant is the poster boy of theology-free pop traditionalism. What you find there is resistance propaganda disguised as Catholicism. And sometimes it's not even disguised. That's why I had to laugh when I heard Matt say, uh, actually, why don't we just listen to exactly what he said? Here's the audio. And, and the bottom line is this, a crisis in the papacy is no excuse to deny the theology of the papacy itself, you see? We are Catholics. In our case, we're Roman Catholics, subject to the See of Peter. We made certain promises at the time of our confirmation, including to accept death before denying a single dogma of the Catholic faith. And among those dogmas we must die rather than deny is papal infallibility. Another is extra ecclesium nulla salis. Still one more is the necessity of being subject to the Roman pontiff. And that was Michael Matt in the video, Resisting Francis to His Face, Standing with Vigano, published on YouTube on October 22nd, 2018. Well, he couldn't be more right. There is no excuse to deny the theology of the papacy. Precisely, it's not permitted to refuse submission to the Roman pontiff. And uh, yet, that's exactly what he and his group keep doing. Not that Francis is Pope, but they believe him to be. And so they continually go against and tell others to go against the person they insist is the legitimate Pope. So, Dr. Matt, physician, heal thyself. The Remnant has even published explicit heresy against the papacy in the not-too-distant past. Remember the article the Remnant published on May 25, 2018 by Elizabeth Yore? It's entitled, Anatomy of a Cover-Up, an Open Letter to Pope Francis. In it, the author states, quote, The College of Cardinals should immediately convene and remove Francis, the Bishop of Rome, for his gross and grave negligence and personal complicity in the systematic flouting and abuse of his own zero-tolerance policy, causing a scandal of epic proportions brought upon the global Catholic Church and the Chilean Catholic Church, unquote. That is heresy, because it denies that the Pope is the highest authority in the Church. It implies that cardinals have authority over the Pope, that they can remove him for moral failings. That denies the dogma of papal primacy. And yet, the remnant printed it, never admitted the error, never corrected it, and the essay is still online. You can still find that heresy there. Now, according to their stats counter, it's been viewed over 14,000 times. Think about this. Think about how many people are impacted and misled 
by this heretical statement, even if only subconsciously. So who's denying the theology of the papacy? It's the remnant. Last month, the remnant published even more blatant heresy against the papacy, against Vatican I. In a very poorly written piece by Jason Morgan that was supposed to be a response to our refutation of him last November, Morgan claimed, quote, Infallibility is a recent invention. In fact, it wasn't until Vatican I that the Church decided, oh fateful day, that popes could be infallible, unquote. Yes, he seriously wrote that. And no, that wasn't said tongue-in-cheek. That is blatant heresy and exactly what Protestants accuse the Catholic Church of, that papal infallibility is an invention of the First Vatican Council. Now, the remnant has since revised that portion of Morgan's article, but that was done quietly, without apologizing or even acknowledging that they had printed heresy. as pure damage control. The revised version now reads, quote, The formal doctrine of papal infallibility is a recent formulation. In fact, it wasn't until Vatican I that the Church defined the extremely limited sense in which popes could be infallible, unquote. Well, too bad that infallibility wasn't part of our argument at all, but we'll let that slide. Morgan doesn't have a leg to stand on, so he needs to redirect the conversation towards a different topic, that of papal infallibility. In any case, that's the remnant for you. In one place, they tell you that you can't deny the theology of the papacy, and then they have no problem doing exactly that. They want to bring back the old faith and then try to do it by denying that faith. It's a traditionalism deprived of Catholic theology, but it's also a traditionalism deprived even of reason. They utilize a sort of drive-by theology at best. Their method is basically this, cobble together whatever bits and pieces from Catholic theology you can use, even if you have to twist them, to arrive at the desired conclusion that Francis is the Pope, but we don't have to submit to him. First, they start with a desired conclusion, and then they look for justification for it. That's how lawyers act. They have the client they need to defend, and so they'll look for whatever can help them get a not-guilty verdict. And it's perhaps no coincidence that the chief polemicist at the remnant is Chris Ferreira, who is a retired lawyer. All right, I'm going to need to interrupt here for just a second. We'll continue with Ferreira in just a moment and uh, tell you briefly about the special fundraiser we've got going because it only lasts through the end of Lent to conclude on Holy Saturday. And I want to make sure I don't forget this. So let me make this very quick. Until April 20th, inclusive, if you make a monetary donation to Novos Ordo Watch of at least 40 US dollars, you are eligible to receive a free book as an incentive gift. The idea is very simple. We need to raise money to keep operations going and hopefully increase them. And in order to make it worth people's while, we offer a great Catholic book in return. And what book that is depends on how much you donate. This year, we're offering a total of four books. They are The Passion and the Death of Jesus Christ by St. Alphonsus Liguori, 
Papal Error? Question mark, a Defense of Popes Said to Have Erred in Faith by St. Robert Bellarmine. The Anti-Modernist Reader Studies on the New Religion of Vatican II, Volume 1, on the Papacy, which is an anthology of Sede Vacanus writings on the Papacy, edited by Father Anthony Ciccata. And finally, the big new book against Vatican II that I mentioned earlier, Vatican II Exposed as Counterfeit Catholicism by Fathers Francisco and Dominic Radecki. You can get any of these if you make a qualifying donation. Restrictions apply, so please have a look at our Lenten fundraising page with all the details linked in the show notes. And remember, this offer only lasts through April 20th. And uh, even if you're not able or interested in donating, take a look at these books anyway. Just looking doesn't cost anything. The idea is to make this the only special fundraiser this year. Um, Nobody likes fundraisers, okay, myself included. So I'm hoping we can just get enough people to contribute this Lent, uh, which of course now is almost over, but I just couldn't get the Tradcast out any sooner. And, uh, well, last year it did work, okay? We only had to have one such special fund drive, and uh, so I'm sure we can do it again. See, if everyone who benefits from Novus Ordo Watch uh, or from these podcasts can chip in just a little bit, then this can easily be accomplished. And, hey, we're willing to show our appreciation to our donors by offering them a tangible gift in return. So, if you give, we give. Oh, and by the way, in the United States, your donation is tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. Okie doke, now we can get back to business. We were talking about the retired attorney and chief semi-trat polemicist Christopher Ferreira. On September 17, 2018, Ferreira published an article in The Remnant entitled Can the Church Defend Herself Against Bergoglio? In it, the author argues that a bunch of reform-minded Novus Ordo Cardinals should get together and depose Francis. Yeah, by some imperfect counsel, they get to decide whether his election was valid or not, or whether he's a heretic. Now, what they would do if the verdict is not unanimous, and they're all divided over it, Ferreira, of course, doesn't say. Likewise, what would be done when Bergoglio declares that this imperfect council is invalid and without force, which if he's the Pope he can actually do, that too is something Ferreira doesn't address. The article is a bit confusing because it's not quite clear, at least not to me, what Ferreira's position actually is. He keeps talking about the case of Pope Benedict IX and his deposition, something we had already addressed and refuted a week prior to Ferreira's piece because the same thing had been argued by Brother Alexis Bugnolo. Uh, But then he also, he now being Ferreira, also talks about whether Francis was even validly elected in the first place and how uncertainty over that would make the election doubtful. And then to conclude, he mentions that if Francis refuses to resign, then the cardinals need to declare his removal from office. So, he's all over the place. But meanwhile, and this is rather funny, Ferrara's co-religionists Robert Sisko and John Salza, whose anti-state of Acantus book True or False Pope Ferrara has endorsed, are insistent that we have infallible certitude that Bergoglio is a true pope because he was, according to them, 
accepted universally and peacefully as Pope by all Catholics, and that makes it a dogmatic fact that he is the Pope. But not enough. Ferreira has since come back with yet another piece, this time published as part of his Fatima Perspectives column at Fatima.org on March 21st of this year. Bishop Athanasius Schneider had just released a lengthy essay on the question of a heretical pope, one which Father Anthony Cicada has just demolished, by the way. And uh, Ferreira, of course, immediately seized the opportunity to fire a few more salvos against Sedevacanism. The funny thing is, Schneider's conclusion was basically that there wasn't anything that could be done about a heretic pope. He could and should be corrected and resisted, yes, but he cannot be removed from office, and so we should all just suffer it and pray. So, no deposition, the exact opposite of what Ferreira had argued in September. And yet, in his March 21st installment, Ferreira approvingly quotes Schneider's conclusion, quote, the act of deposition of a pope because of heresy or the declaration of the vacancy of the papal chair because of the loss of the papacy ipso facto on behalf of a heretical pope would be a revolutionary novelty in the life of the church, and this regarding a highly important issue of the constitution and the life of the church. One has to follow in such a delicate matter, even if it is of practical and not strictly of doctrinal nature, the surer way of the perennial sense of the church, unquote. And here you can see what a complete mess it is in resistance land. They're the blind leading the blind. And as I said earlier, the only thing they always agree on is that Sedevacantism is false. And that, incidentally, is the one thing that's giving rise to all this crazy drive-by theology in the first place. Whatever it takes to say that Sedevacantism is false. As a resistance trad, you can say and argue whatever you want as long as you don't ever say that Francis isn't the Pope. What utter madness. Follow these people at your own risk. It's all garbage. All right, last case in point today, Professor Roberto de Mattei. He's a Novus Ordo historian who's been busy giving lectures left and right about how Catholics should act under Francis' reign of error, and that, of course, Francis is definitely the Pope, at least until further notice. And we'll get to that in a moment. So, on November 29th of last year, de Mattei gave a talk in Rome entitled Pope Francis Five Years Later, Continuity of Rupture in the Church. An English translation of it was published on LifeSite and more recently now also on Catholic Family News. Ladies and gentlemen, that talk was theological comedy hour. When you read it, you really have to ask yourself if these recognize and resist icons ever listen to themselves. Do they ever really think about what they're saying and reason through what the logical implications and consequences are? Unlike his co-religionist Athanasius Schneider, de Mattei agrees that a pope can indeed cease to be pope for public heresy, and I'll assume that he also agrees that a man who is a public heretic before any papal election cannot validly be elected to the papacy to begin with. But de Mattei sets the bar 
artificially high for what qualifies as public heresy. In a speech on November 29th, he said, quote, A pope can lose his pontificate for many reasons, including heresy, but these reasons must be incontrovertible. The heresy, but also the invalidity of the election, must be manifest and widely known to the whole church, because the church is a visible society and not an invisible congregation of elected people as Protestant sects are. In order to speak about notorious and manifest heresy, it is not enough that the Pope professes or publicly favors heresy. It must be perceived as such by Catholic public opinion. The bishops, and especially the cardinals, who are the electors and counselors of the Pope, must recognize these facts and see their consequences. Until then, a Pope must be considered legitimate." Unquote. Now, you can probably guess as to the source he gave for making these claims. Correct. None whatsoever. He simply asserted them and then left it at that. So, Let's think about this for a minute. DeMattei is saying that as long as the faithful don't recognize that their pope teaches heresy, in other words, as long as they follow the pope into heresy, he's still the pope. But once they've pretty much all realized that he's a heretic, that's when he stops being pope. So just when he's the most dangerous, he's legit. And as soon as the jig is up and everyone's figured out he's been misleading them, that's when he ceases to be Pope. That's awesome. That's why, that's why I said, do these people ever listen to themselves? This is what I mean when I say that these semi-trads have made Catholic theology their own little playpen. This is comedy. Now, De Matteo goes on and starts talking about Jose Antonio Ureta's recent book called Pope Francis' Paradigm Shift, which we've mentioned on Tratcast Express before. And uh, De Matteo says, quote, The last 20 pages, chapter 10 and the conclusion, suggest how we ought to behave in this dramatic situation. The solution Ureta offers us is a balanced solution. The position of Jose Antonio Ureta, which is our position, is balanced because it is based on the fundamental distinction between the church, which is holy and immune from all error, and the men of the church who can sin and err. Unquote. Aha. So, let's make clear we understand what the professor is saying. The Vatican II church, even under Francis, is holy and immune from all error. Wait a minute, that's the same church that has introduced the new mass, that has made a mockery of the canonization of saints, that has as part of its papal magisterium all of France's encyclicals, apostolic exhortations, letters, constitutions, and motu proprios, France's sermons, and his speeches. Uh, that's the same church that has cranked out manifestly false saints, such as John the Twenty-Third, John Paul the Second, Paul the Sixth, and Oscar Romero. It's the same church that has just updated its catechism to say that the death penalty is never permissible when we know the opposite is true, and it's the same church that dishes out marriage annulments like candy, and has now, thanks to Francis made abortion grounds for annulment. 
In other words, if a woman wants to get her marriage declared null, she can get pregnant, have the baby killed, and then apply for an annulment. It is diabolical. Don't believe it? Well, go ahead and look it up. It's in France's so-called apostolic letters, Mitis Judex Dominus Jesus for the Western Church and Mitis et Misericors Jesus for the Eastern Churches, article number 14 for both. They were released on September 8th, 2015, but they're officially dated August 15th of that year. Of course, a real slap in the face of the Blessed Mother. And we've got the links uh, to these documents in the show notes. But don't worry, that church is entirely holy and free from all error, right? It's just the individual sinners like Francis that are the problem here. In other words, we're going to say that the church is all holy and all perfect because whenever she's not, then we'll just blame it on the people. And not only is that theologically untenable, it also renders the truth of the church's perfect holiness and spotlessness meaningless. Because with all the things I just enumerated, canonization of saints, liturgical rites, doctrine, canon law, and so forth, if that's not the church but only individual sinners in the church who can be evil and mislead you, well, then what's left for the church to be holy and spotless about? The truth is, and this is the point of it all, that the church is always the safe guide in matters of salvation. In the encyclical Sapientiae Christiane, number 24, Pope Leo XIII taught, quote, It belongs to the Pope to judge authoritatively what things the sacred oracles contain, as well as what doctrines are in harmony and what in disagreement with them, and also for the same reason to show forth what things are to be accepted as right and what to be rejected as worthless, what it is necessary to do and what to avoid doing in order to attain eternal salvation. For otherwise, there would be no sure interpreter of the commands of God, nor would there be any safe guide showing man the way he should live. Unquote. See, you can always cling to the church and lean on her like a little child, knowing you will not be misled. You will never receive anything from her that will endanger your salvation. That's why she's called Holy Mother Church. Now, that's not exactly an accurate description of the Vatican II Church, is it? Would you really entrust your soul to Francis as your safe guide to show you what is right and wrong, what is to be believed, and what is to be rejected? Well, I didn't think so. De Matteo elaborates, quote, Infallibility is reserved only to the Pope when he teaches under certain conditions, or to the ordinary magisterium when it reaffirms with continuity and consistency the mutable truths of the Church. Unquote. False. Or at least, it's not the whole story. The Church is also infallible in her universal disciplines, such as are found in the Code of Canon Law, which is affected by the changes Francis made to marriage annulments we just talked about, because that was actually an update to canon law. And the Church is also infallible in the canonization of saints, in the liturgical rites she authorizes universally, and so on. I mean, you can just look it up in the theology books from before Vatican II. With regard to the ordinary magisterium, 
It is true that the ordinary magisterium is infallible only when universal, but de Matei, like all other resistance strads, is misinterpreting what is meant by universal. Something that is taught universally means it is taught throughout the church by a moral unanimity of all bishops in union with the Pope. Whatever is taught in such a way is infallible, on faith and morals, of course, and as divinely revealed. But that is infallible. De Matteo's position, though, is that universality refers not just to space throughout the world, but also to time from the beginning until now. And so he, like all his co-religionists, think they can reject all the novelties from the Novus Ordo Magisterium on the grounds that this new stuff was never taught before. So it's therefore not the universal ordinary magisterium, and therefore not infallible. Well, of course that sounds nice, but it's false. That's not what the Catholic Church understands by universality, and if she did, it would be quite odd, because how is the average Catholic in the pew, especially in times before modern communication and education, how would the average Catholic know whether something was taught for 2,000 years or not, right, or, or 1,500 years or whatever the case may be? And if something was always taught uh, for all the prior time, what then is the role of the magisterium? other than repeating what everyone already knows to be true anyway. See, this false argument was also made around the time of the First Vatican Council in 1870. Opponents of papal infallibility were saying that this teaching was new, that it hadn't been believed always and everywhere, and that therefore it couldn't be taught, it couldn't be part of the magisterium, or at least it could never be infallible, it couldn't be dogma. And they appealed to St. Vincent of Lerins, to the rule he offered, uh, called the Vincentian Canon, that the standard of orthodoxy was what had been believed always, everywhere, and by all. Well, in 1875, Cardinal John Franzelin set the record straight on that. He published an article showing that the Vincentian Canon was to be understood not in the sense that all three criteria had to be met, always, everywhere, and by all, but that any one of these by itself was sufficient to guarantee orthodoxy. Whenever something has been believed always, or everywhere, or by everyone. Cardinal Franzelin's entire essay on that has been translated into English, and we're making that link available to you in the show notes. And let no one say that this is just Cardinal Franzelin's private opinion or whatever. The book in which he included that essay was published by the Holy See under Pope Pius IX. And no, that doesn't make it infallible, but it does make it authoritative and a truckload better than what the semi-trads have to say. But uh, back to De Matei. The second error in what he said is to suppose that only what is infallible is also binding on the Catholic conscience. That's simply not true. Let's quote Pope Pius XI on that. From his encyclical Casti Canubii of 1930, quote, Wherefore, let the faithful also be on their guard against the overrated independence of private judgment and that false autonomy of human reason, 
for it is quite foreign to everyone bearing the name of a Christian to trust his own mental powers with such pride as to agree only with those things which he can examine from their inner nature, and to imagine that the Church, sent by God to teach and guide all nations, is not conversant with present affairs and circumstances, or even that they must obey only in those matters which she has decreed by solemn definition, as though her other decisions might be presumed to be false or putting forward insufficient motive for truth and honesty. Quite to the contrary, a characteristic of all true followers of Christ, lettered or unlettered, is to suffer themselves to be guided and led in all things that touch upon faith or morals by the Holy Church of God through its supreme pastor, the Roman Pontiff, who is himself guided by Jesus Christ our Lord. Unquote. Again, that's Pope Pius XI, Encyclical Casti Canubii, number 104. So, listen up, Dr. De Matei. Pius XI didn't say, well, you know, the Pope is a sinner too, so he can teach you all kinds of garbage, but you, you folks who can read and think, go ahead and always check that whatever comes from the Holy See is actually correct and traditional, and not heretical or otherwise harmful to souls. I mean, what an absurdity that would be. But that's basically what the Semitrads believe, that the Pope can teach all sorts of junk, even heresy, just not ex cathedra. And when that happens, the entire church needs to rise up and say, hey dude, what are you doing? And then if the Pope is nice, if he's a good Pope, then he will retract and condemn his own heresy and everything is fine again. That is theological absurdistan. And try to find that in traditional Catholic teaching. So once again, we see that those who style themselves traditional Catholics are really not traditional at all, or only in certain respects, hence our moniker, semi-trads. All right, we'll stop here. Um, it's been a very long show, and I thank you all for listening. You know, the, the key to figuring out this whole mess is really not that difficult. Read the traditional Catholic teachings on the Church, on the papacy, and on the magisterium. If what you find there you cannot apply to the Vatican II Church, to Francis and his five predecessors, and to the Novus Ordo Magisterium, then their goose is cooked. Then the Vatican II Church is not the Catholic Church. Its heads are not true popes, and its magisterium is a bunch of hooey. Okay? And no amount of resistance in the world can change that. And to help you with that, we've put up a post called The Francis Papacy Test. Make sure you click on that and uh, see for yourself, test for yourself, if it's possible that Francis could be a true pope. Do it. Give it a try. It's a lot of fun. The Francis Papacy Test. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this was Tratcast number 24. Please uh, spread the word if you like the podcast. Share it with friends and family and maybe even with enemies. And uh, if there's nothing else you remember about this show, remember this one thing. Sedevacantism is the position where every pope is a Catholic. Until next time, God bless.
Trapcast. <laughs>